The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Clarence Johnson with a message from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 28, the Most High's Everlasting Kingdom. Well, we're about to take a look at Daniel chapter 7, and uh, it's, uh, the message is entitled The Most High Everlasting Kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. I need to let you know that uh, Daniel chapter 7 is probably the, one of the heaviest chapters in the book of Daniel. It's key to the book of Daniel, but one of the heavy chapters because uh, it ends with Daniel literally, if I can put it this way, being sick to his stomach over what occurs and what he sees in this particular chapter. And so, you know, after, like I said, following Steve and Timothy and so on, and then to get, uh, you know, this heavy chapter, you know, where Daniel is, is literally grieved at the end of the chapter, you know, rather difficult. But we're going to take a look at this chapter, and we're going to look at the text. You need to have your Bibles out, uh, because uh, we aren't going to be reading every verse, and I want you to take a look at those verses uh, as we move along, as we look at Daniel chapter 7. We've divided the chapter up. If uh, you look at the text, what you're going to find is that it's a, a unique structure here in the text. And the first half of the chapter, Daniel gives a summary of his vision and his dream that he has. And in the second half of the chapter, there's a bit of an interpretation of that dream. And it covers some of the same material. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide the chapter up uh, a little more topically so that you can have that information and we can cover it all in one session and that will give you a foundation for understanding the chapter. Uh, so, but uh, keep in mind, if you would, that the chapter is not divided the way I'm dividing it, uh, but it is divided uh, by Daniel's summary of the dream and then a heavenly interpretation of the dream and Daniel's reaction. But to cover that material, and rather than going over it, we're going to cover it topically. So taking a look at Daniel's dream in chapter, or in verse 1 through 3, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind uh, as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So we need to keep in mind that this is a very important dream because Daniel wrote it down. It was very impactful upon him. It is the first of four visions that Daniel will have here from here on in the rest of the book. It's important and it's vital to understanding the entire prophecy of the book of Daniel. Now this dream in chapter 7, as Mike mentioned yesterday, does not occur in chronological order. The chapters in Daniel don't go one, two, three, four chronologically in the events. This dream takes place in between chapter four and chapter five, but it's not revealed to us here until chapter seven. So keep that in mind, and that's why it tells us in the verse one, in the first year of Bel Belshazzar. Now, that's the king or the pseudo king that uh, was mentioned last night. Uh, in, uh, you know, in the earlier chapter, in chapter 5. So this occurs, this vision occurs somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now here's the summary of this dream that he begins in uh, this, in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And so it's important to understand that the winds here most likely are angels. 
And what Daniel sees in this vision are these angelic beings stirring up a sea. And the sea represents, throughout Scripture, the Gentile nations, the world. And so they're, they're stirring up the world, stirring up the sea, stirring up the Gentile nations and kingdoms, and it's chaotic. So what we're seeing here is a chaotic situation within the world and the history of the world. When it mentions the great sea, 10 times in scripture, actually 12 times in the Old Testament, we find that the great sea is referring to the Mediterranean. And that's what they would understand. They didn't have satellites back then to give them a picture of the whole globe. They understood the Mediterranean to be, which was the great sea in the midst of the known world at that time, uh, that uh, that's what it refers to when it talks about the great sea. And then I want you to also notice in this summary, in the first few verses, that the four beasts are different. They are different. Notice that it actually tells us that in the text. In verse 3, they were different from one another. And that's going to be important as we look at this text. So four great beasts. And uh, you like my, my pictures up there? Well, I didn't draw them, but, uh, you know, uh, got the rights to uh, be able to show them. And so we're going to look at these four beasts in just a short while. Because if we go and jump down a little bit later on in the text, in the explanation and interpretation of the text by an angelic being, and you look in verse 17 and 18, we have a summary of the interpretation, and that helps us to understand what we're talking about here. It tells us in verse 17 and 18 that these great beasts, and this is an explanation of the interpretation, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now that's a summary of the interpretation, the heavenly interpretation of the dream. And that helps us to understand when we come back and take a look at this. So in verse 17, it describes what the beasts are. The beasts are four kings, they are from the earth, and they will rule for just a period of time. And verse 18 talks about dominion and promise which is an eternal promise, and that's talking about the kingdom of God. And that summary in verse 18 said that the earthly kingdoms are going to rule for a short period of time, but there is coming a kingdom and a rule that will be given to the saints forever and for all ages to come. Now, I also want you to notice, and you can uh, go through this as you go and study this text uh, a little bit later on, uh, that the kingdom is not built by the saints, the kingdom is not captured by the saints. The kingdom is not militarily conquered by the saints. The kingdom is given to the saints, and the saints possess it. The saints possess it, and that's very, very important because what we find today as I travel and as I listen and as I read the writings, I see all this being talked about that we're building the kingdom. Well, if you look here, and this is a text that's speaking of the Old Testament saints, and it's speaking of Israel, but the kingdom is given to the saints. It's possessed by the saints. It's not built by the saints. And we're going to see in the text a little bit later where that kingdom comes from. So that's a little bit of a summary. Let's take a look back at the four kings and their kingdoms. First of all, we have 
the kingdom that looks like and has the appearance like a lion. Notice that it doesn't say it is a lion, so our graphics are not exactly uh, you know, perfect, uh, but it tells us that it's like a lion. So that's the way Daniel describes it. And this would be representative of the head of gold in chapter two. So it represents Babylon. A lion is powerful, it has great strength, it's swift, it has wings, which means that it's even swifter. It's very fast in terms of its ability to conquer, in terms of its ability to devour. And it's rather interesting that Babylon, one of the symbols of Babylon that they found archaeologically, uh, is that they use a winged lion as one of the symbols for Babylon. They find it on some of their reliefs. They found statues of winged lions and so on. But if you look at uh, verse 4, uh, what you find here is that this lion uh, in the passage is uh, made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. But that doesn't happen until its wings are plucked, which means that some of its power, some of its bite, some of its swiftness is taken away from it. Now, what did we hear in a previous message about Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he ended up, and God had to teach him a lesson, didn't he? In a sense, his wings were plucked. He ended up being like a beast. And yet we know historically that after that particular time in history, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom kind of softened a little bit and uh, was a little more humane. It wasn't perfect, but a little more humane than it was in the beginning. And so this lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. The second beast is the bear in verse 5. And once again, it resembles a bear. And the bear represents, in Daniel chapter 2, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the breast and the arms of silver. So you can compare that with chapter 2. Now, a bear is strong and fierce. And a bear is bigger than the lion, but it's not so fast. It's not as quick, it's not as agile. So we look at the Medo-Persian Empire and their conquering of the world, and they conquered the Babylonians, which we also heard about last night. But the Medo-Persian Empire was slower in their ability to conquer, but they were even more powerful than the Babylonians. One side of the bear is higher than the other in verse 5. Why? Because the Persians were actually the dominant partner in this dual kingdom. The Persians were dominant, so one side more dominant than the other. It has three ribs in its mouth. If you look at, once again, I want you to be focusing on the text in verse 5. It has three ribs in its mouth because the Medo-Persians, they had conquered Babylon, they conquered Lydia, and they conquered Egypt. So three kingdoms that they conquered. Now, notice something else that's very, very important it tells us that they were commanded, that the bear was commanded to conquer, to devour more. Why is that important? Because we've learned all along that the authority to rule, the authority to have power on this earth for kingdoms is given by whom? It's given by God. And who does the commanding here but one of the angelic beings, one of the four winds that's stirring up. And so God through his angelic forces that are at work in the world to guide and direct the history of the world in the Gentile nations, 
is giving power and authority to the Medo-Persians to conquer and to devour. The third beast in verse 6 is like a leopard, like a leopard. And this would be Greece. It's the belly and the thighs of bronze in chapter 2 and the statue that's there. Now, a leopard is very swift and very agile, and it has four wings, not just two wings like a lion, but four wings, which makes it even faster and swifter than the lion. Now, why do we say this represents Greece? Alexander the Great, it only took him a few years to actually conquer the known world all the way over to India. Probably the, the fastest conquering of the world that we know of in terms of Gentile history. Then why four heads? Well, after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. Now, very interesting because Daniel gets this vision and gets the interpretation while he's still living under the Babylonian rule. The Medes and the Persians hadn't even conquered Babylon yet because this occurs between chapter 4 and 5 and they don't get conquered till chapter 5. And so Daniel, to Daniel, this is prophetic as to what's going to be in the future. And if you'll notice here again in that passage about the leopard, what does it tell us? It tells us that dominion was given to it. Who gives the power to rule? Now, that may be a little disconcerting to some of us because we look and we say, you know, wait a minute. You mean God's behind all of this? God gives the permission. What did we see in chapter 2? God is the one that raises up kings and brings kings down. God is the one who grants dominion and takes dominion away. You see, we think it's all about armies and military and politics and, and so on. Nothing happens in terms of the eternal destiny of this world unless God allows it. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. Let's look at the fourth beast. Now, the fourth beast uh, doesn't, Daniel can't even give it a likeness of an animal. He calls it the dreadful beast in verses 7 and 8 and uh, a number of other passages. It's a dreadful beast. And the dreadful beast uh, would compare to the legs uh, of iron and the feet and toes of iron and clay uh, that we have, which represents the Roman Empire and the Roman rule upon the earth. Now, what we find here is it's dreadful and terrifying. Notice that it tells us that it has iron teeth to devour and that it crushes other empires and other people groups with its feet. But notice also in verse 7, it tells us that it's different from the others in the fact that it has ten horns. Ten horns. So a ten-horned beast. So this beast has a lot of interest, and Daniel's going to ask about this beast uh, in, uh, in this passage. He's going to ask his interpreter and say, but, you know, I'm interested in this What's with, the, what's with these horns? Well, jump down to verse 23 and 24 uh, because it tells us that this different beast in the interpretation aspect of the chapter tells us that this different beast is going to devour the whole earth and crush it. The Roman Empire was brutal. 
was brutal in its domination of the world. But there's also some secrets hidden in this passage about the Roman Empire, which we're going to see in just a moment. And it also tells us that the ten horns represent ten kings. Ten kings. Well, that's a, a preview of those four kings and their kingdoms. But uh, there's another one. And we're going to look at that in a moment because uh, do you wonder what those ten horns are? That's the same thing Daniel wondered. And he asked. So, if the text tells us about it, we can look, as I said, in verse 7 and 8, but also verse 19 and 20 and a little bit further on. I want you to look, if you would, in verse 24 at the explanation. What does it say? The ten horns come out of this last dreadful kingdom, and they represent ten kings that will arise out of this kingdom, this empire. And notice it says, and another will arise after them. After them. Now, that's a little secret that I want you to take a look at, because this empire, this kingdom, seems to have phases to it. Because first you have the dreadful beast, and then with the ten horns. And so you have a dreadful beast that goes around stomping and devouring, and then you have a phase of this dreadful beast that has ten kings of the horns, and then all of a sudden you have another that will arise after them. Now, the typical uh, approach to this is that we talk about this being the revived Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire uh, will be revived in prophetic times still yet to come. But I might suggest to you that there's a possibility that we can be a little nitpicky here and say that instead of just two phases to the Roman Empire, that there are three historical phases to the Roman Empire. You have the phase of the beast that devours and conquers, and then you have the phase of the ten kings, and then after that, you have a phase with the one that will arise after them. And uh, what is that one that arises after them? But an arrogant little horn. An arrogant little horn. You know, rather interesting way of putting it, but uh, the text doesn't name this little horn. But on top of this head, and in verse 8 and verse 11 and following, uh, it tells us about this. Look at verse 8 in the text. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Ah, this is a sweet little horn, you know. This is, you know. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that's kind of a nasty picture, you know, ripping the horns out by the roots. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth uttering great boasts. Well, let's look at this little horn. This is the boastful horn, and the boastful horn represents the Antichrist, who will rule over the revived Roman Empire of the future. And so this little horn comes up from within the ten horns, uproots, pulls the three horns out by you know, the roots, which is a, a conquering term, and it has eyes like a man, which means that this little horn has human qualities, and a very big mouth. 
boastful mouth, arrogant, the Antichrist. Well, look at verse 25 uh, and uh, see what it says here about this little horn. Verse 25 says that the little horn, this boastful, arrogant horn, is going to speak against the Most High. It's going to wear down the saints, you know, grind on the saints. Now, Daniel, remember, is an Old Testament saint. His understanding is that this is a prophecy that's specifically directed toward the saints of Israel. And so we need to understand that he is going to wear down the saints and uh, he is going to alter the times and the law. He's going to change the laws. He's going to rule the world. He's going to set up what goes and what doesn't go and how things are going to operate. He's going to change the times. He's going to change the world in the way that it operates. And it also tells us in, uh, in, the, in this verse, verse 25, that he is going to persecute the saints for a time, times, and half a time which you're going to learn a little bit later in the book of Daniel, is three and a half years. That's the great tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, when the Antichrist will turn against Israel and persecute the Jews. Let's look at verse 20 and 21, a little bit more about this little horn. Uh, rather interesting, although it's a boastful little horn, it appears larger than all the others. It appears larger than all the others. And it also tells us more about the fact that this little horn is going to war with the saints and it is going to overpower the saints. We know from other prophecies in the scriptures that the Antichrist is going to bring about the death of about two-thirds of all Jewish people who are alive on the earth during this time. Only one-third will survive. Now, that's, that's kind of, that's not the kind of message you want on a Sunday morning. And that's the way it goes until we get to verse 22. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, there is divine justice that's coming. Divine justice that's coming. And uh, you can look at verse 22 of chapter 7. And uh, it doesn't show on the top of the screen, but uh, verses 10 through 12 and also verse 26. And I have those uh, verses are there in your notes for you. But I want you to look at verse 22. What does it say? This little horn is going to be overtaking and defeating the saints, the Old Testament saints, the, the, the Jewish people. And he's going to be persecuting them. He's going to change the world. He's going to be dominant. He's going to be boastful. He's going to be blaspheming God. And that's going to occur until the Ancient of Days decides that his time is up. Now, the Ancient of Days is a name for God. But why that term? Well, because Ancient of Days is a term that would represent the fact that he has existed throughout all of history, from eternity past to eternity future. And what do these kingdoms do? They have dominion for a period of time. But the Ancient of Days has dominion for what? For all time. For all time. And so the Ancient of Days in verse 22, I, I, I really like this verse. Verse 22 says, until the Ancient of Days, and I like that little word until. In fact, circle that in your Bible because that's kind of like the hope that we have. That's the hope. 
you know, for Israel and for the Jewish people and for the world. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. So it's a courtroom scene. And the Ancient of Days comes upon the scene. God, there's a courtroom scene in verse 10 and verse 12. We'll see that in a moment. There's a courtroom scene. And he judges in favor of the saints. And the big mouth is going to get his. Because God's going to say, guilty, and if you look here a little bit further in uh, verse 22, at the end of it said uh, that the, uh, he's going to judge and pass favor in the, uh, of the saints of the highest, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom, and he's going to give the rule of the earth to the saints. Once again, notice possession. They take possession. He gives it to them. Look at verse 10, the last part of verse 10 into the verse 12. Uh, it's a court scene. And so the court in heaven see, is seated. The books are open. And while judgment is about to come upon, you know, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming on this little horn. He's still boasting. He's still arrogant. Why? Because the Antichrist, of course, is what? He is empowered by the one who rebelled against God in the first place and boasted against God that he might be like the most high. But it tells us here that part of the court scene and the judgment that God passes is that the beast is slain, his body is thrown into the uh, you know, eternal lake of fire, the burning fire, and it tells us that the other beasts who had dominion for a period of time, but had no dominion after they were conquered, uh, that their life continued. Now, that's a little confusing, but what does it mean? What he's saying here is that this fourth beast, this dreadful beast, you know, every beast that conquered the beast before it made the former kingdom a part of it. So even though the former kingdom didn't have power and dominion, it was still lived on. So in other words, you know, the Babylonians still lived on in the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persians, they lived on in, you know, uh, in, in Greece. And the Greeks, you know, they lived on in Rome because they conquered all of this. And so what you have is you have, have this, but he tells us here that, guess what? This is the end. Because when that beast is thrown in, all of earthly dominion is over. And the dominion is given, what? To the saints the saints. Now, what we're seeing here is the stone that crushed the statue in chapter 2. Look at verse 26. It tells us a little bit more about it. It said, the court sits in judgment, and uh, the little horn, his dominion is taken away. He's annihilated. He's destroyed forever. That fourth beast kingdom, revived Roman Empire, the dominions of man are destroyed forever. For Ever. divine justice. Well, part of that divine justice uh, brings in a new divine dominion. And if you look at verses 9 and 10, what you see is that the Ancient of Days, once again, is there in heaven with the thrones of judgment. I like the fact that the way that they present God, uh, God doesn't really look like this. God doesn't have a physical body. 
Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh, but, uh, you know, God the Father, you know, God doesn't have a physical body, spirit, but it says that he has white hair and his clothing are white. That represents pure holiness. And he's surrounded by fire, and fire represents the glory and presence of God. And there are thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads that serve him. They're the angels. This is God the Father. God the Father. And then we go on in verse 13 and 14, and we see that someone else shows up. Someone like a son of man. I wonder who that could be. Because in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and 26, Jesus called himself the Son of Man and said that he was going to come with the clouds of heaven. And look at what we find here in the passage. It says that the Son of Man, you know, comes upon this court scene with the clouds of heaven. So this is Jesus Christ. And he is presented to the Ancient of Days, and he is given dominion and glory, and he is given a kingdom. He's given a kingdom. Look at the passage, if you would, with me. In 13 and 14, it said, And I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and all nations and all languages, his dominion would be everlasting. It would never, ever pass away. His kingdom would never be destroyed. This is the stone that crushed the statue, and the stone grew to fill the entire earth. Now, I personally believe, and others don't, but I personally believe that, and there's not a lot that matches, uh, and we get different aspects of this in Scripture, but I believe that this scene, the courtroom scene here, represents or could be linked to Revelation 4 and 5 when the Lamb comes and takes the land, the scroll, from, uh, you know, to take dominion. And so uh, it, it, it's not a perfect picture here, but it uh, deals with the same particular issue. And so what we have here is the Lord giving the kingdom to the Son and the Son thereby giving it to the saints. Wow. Well, there was a promise in verse 18 that said that the saints were going to receive the kingdom. I mentioned that. And that they were going to possess it forever, for all ages to come. And here in verse 27, what we find is that dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms is given to the people of the saints. And his kingdom is everlasting, and all dominions obey and serve him. Well, wow. That's good news, isn't it? That's great news, isn't it? Look at the last verse, chapter tw or verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Huh. The revelation ended, but he's actually sick. He's physically sick. Why? I mean, we're sitting here going, wow, this is great. You know, hey, God's going to whoop up on that, you know, on that little arrogant horn, and he's going to do this, and the Son of Man's going to have dominion, and the saints are going to rule, and, and isn't this great? 
I isn't this good news, Steve? Great. But why is Daniel so distressed? Why is Daniel so distressed? Men who go to war, and perhaps some of you here have been in wars, at war, they go to war, and even though they may win the war, they are grieved and touched by what they see. I worked for 10 years uh, at, while I was pastoring our church gave my time to the community. I worked with emergency services as a critical incident uh, debriefer, and uh, I would be called for the worst situations when policemen would, you know, line of duty deaths, all kind of things, but things that dealt with children and what have you. And we would go back and debrief with the, the rescuers and first responders. They didn't go back and cheer, they didn't go back and do those things. Many of them bore great burdens in their heart for the things that they saw. You know, this is one of the problems I have with a little personal thing I have with, with prophecy conferences in the Christian church. We get all excited and, yeah, wow, you know, God's going to beat up on them and this, and we win, we win, we win, and we should rejoice. But where's our heart for all those who are lost. Where's our heart for those who are going to be taken captive by this boastful little horn? Where's our heart for all those who will die? Where's our heart for others who are under the dominion of these kingdoms and, and will suffer and have suffered? And that, I believe, is why Daniel's reaction is not the same reaction he had in the middle of chapter 2 where he praised and gave God great glory. But here's one where he saw the absolute horrors. And remember, we, we look at these animal pictures, and but Daniel had a vision and said they were like this. And he called the last beast dreadful and terrifying. My friends, the direction that the world is going, according to prophetic truth, is not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. And we as Christians need to rejoice in the rule and the reign and the plan that God has for his people Israel and for his church. But we also need to have the somber seriousness that Daniel had that says, I'm concerned. And what has God called me to do? What's he called us to do? He's called us to dare to be a Daniel. And I'd like to challenge you as we have this prophecy conference, please don't go home and go, wow, you know, I learned so much. I'm so hyped up on this and I have my head's filled with all this knowledge. But can we open our hearts enough to have a burden, a burden for the lost, a burden for God's people, Israel, and the Jewish people, and a burden for those around us. Amen. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past prophecy conferences, visit us at foi.org.